Hey, this is part two of our Sanctity of Human Life series. Last week, we talked about abortion. We talked about the sanctity of human life in the womb. We talked about the sanctity of life as it relates to women in crisis pregnancies. Uh, We laid a foundation, I hope, for an understanding of just why human beings have dignity, value, and worth. We talked about the love of God that sanctifies and his love comes to humanity in creation. His love comes to humanity in conception and his love comes to humanity in redemption. Now, this week, we're gonna be talking about the sanctity of human life as it relates to the issues of immigration and refugee resettlement. Immigration and refugee resettlement. And I wanna say up front that there are a lot of complexities in the issues of immigration policy. There are a lot of complexities as it relates to refugee settlement policy as well. So there's things that are complex, and then there are things that are just very simple. There's things that are very, very simple. Policy on immigration, there's complexity. There's going to be disagreement. There's going to be some of the best Christian minds getting together and disagreeing on next steps. But when it relates to immigrants, we're not talking about issues. We're talking about human beings in the image of God. There's complexities as it relates to refugees and resettlement and securing borders and vetting. And there's good people that love Jesus that disagree on details but there's great simplicity as it relates to the heart of Jesus for the refugee. So to help you with this topic, uh, I wanna say up front that today is not gonna answer every question. I'm not gonna pretend that it's gonna answer every question. It won't. Uh, So what we'd like to do is begin, hopefully by God's grace, a culture-shaping conversation about the heart of God for immigrants, the heart of God for refugees, and we wanna do our job as pastors to train and equip you as followers of Jesus to think deeply about the gospel and how the gospel should form your view of immigration and refugees. So with that in mind, we've got some great resources. I wanna do this upfront, get it out of the way. A couple of fantastic books and uh, resources are on our website. You can go to frontlinechurch.com, hit our blog section. We've got a white paper on immigration that helps explain a lot of the complexities. We've got several articles on refugees. We've got good stats that have been vetted, so you can dig into that. A couple of fantastic books I'll recommend. The first is called Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. This is written by Matthew Sorens and Jenny Yang. This is a fantastic book, and it gets into both scripture and the current climate as it relates to immigration, and it helps unpack some of the complications around policy. Uh, In addition to that, this book is called Seeking Refuge on the Shores of the Global Refugee Crisis. This will get to the heart of what's happening globally with displaced peoples. Now, with that in mind, let's dive into this. And let me try to start by answering the question, why would we tackle this topic knowing that it's so controversial right now? Why would we stand up on a Sunday and take this topic knowing that this is actually gonna clear out some seats over the next couple of weeks? And I know it will. Why would we talk about this knowing that there's a high likelihood that our budget is gonna be hit because we're gonna do this topic? Why would we lean into this? And I'll give you a couple of reasons. Uh, The first reason that we want to lean into this is that there is both a global crisis as it relates to refugees, and there's a national crisis in the U.S. as it relates to immigration. Globally, as it relates to refugees, there are now 60 million people. So let's stop because numbers that big just sort of fly over our head. Think about it. 60 million image bearers of God who have been displaced due to violence, persecution, and disaster, 60 million. What's breathtaking about that is that's actually the largest number of displaced peoples in the history of the world, including what happened after World War II. So it is global, it's broad, and it's devastating. The stories of abuse and suffering as it relates to refugees are breathtaking. The number of women and young girls that are being sexually assaulted in transit from war-torn areas to other areas is incredible. The loss of life. (laughs) Is devastating. So it's not exaggerating and it's not being twisted by one persuasion in the media to say what's happening globally is a unique moment in which the church of Jesus needs to be the voice of Jesus in the hands and feet of Jesus. These are the moments where the relevance of the gospel gets shown forth in its beauty and glory. In addition to that, in the U.S., 
As it relates to immigration, there is a crisis. We have 40 million immigrants in the U.S., more than any other nation on earth. Uh, It's right to say that we are a nation of immigrants, though we've never really figured out what that should mean for our national culture. We are a nation of immigrants. Uh, Unless you're my friend Tim Yego, who's uh, from the Kiowa tribe, you're an immigrant. And, And in this particular moment of those 40 million immigrants in the U.S., here's what's amazing, 11.4 million of them are undocumented immigrants. What do you do with that? How do you relate to that? What does that mean? What should you be aware of as a follower of Jesus? Now, in addition to just the situation, this is where it becomes an issue of discipleship and mission in the local church. Many Christians are not not being formed by scripture in their views of immigrants or refugees. They're not being formed by scripture. Here's the data to back that up. It's not just anecdotal. When surveyed, just 12%, 12% of white evangelicals see immigration primarily through the lens of, the, of their faith or of scripture. That means that 88%, 88% of white evangelicals are not factoring in the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God in the way they look at and view immigration and refugee resettlement. Now that's a problem. That's a problem. To be followers of Jesus and to be confused and to be unsure of what should be the primary shaping lens through which we see the world. That's a problem. Whether you're talking about money or you're talking about sex or you're talking about rearing children and the fear and adoration of the the Lord, or you're talking about immigration and refugees, we as the people of Jesus need to have our lives built on the rock that is Jesus instead of being first Democrat or first Republican, first right wing or first left wing, first and foremost, if you're a disciple of Jesus, his word is authoritative. As it relates to immigration, sadly, many Christians are ignorant of how the character of God, the mission of the church, the substance of the gospel all speak to our engagement of refugees and immigrants. Now, in addition to being unsure of what the scripture says, sadly, a large portion of evangelical Christians are also ignorant of the current situation as it relates to immigration and refugees. And they're ignorant of just how clearly the gospel speaks to the heart of God for these people. This is where it gets a little bit overwhelming. Uh, We live in a moment that is so polarized and it's so full of misinformation that just taking a day and sorting out what are actual facts would be really helpful for us as a Christian community. Um, This is a moment where there are indeed alternative facts on both sides of the aisle. This is a moment where there is indeed fake news on both sides of the aisle. And whether you're getting your news primarily from CNN or primarily from Fox, you have to admit that there is no such thing as fair and balanced coverage of what's happening in the U.S. So how do you get your information? How do you sort through what's really happening? And what's happening in this moment, what's happening in this moment is that because there's a lack of good data and because there's not a biblical foundation as it relates to immigration and refugee resettlement, what tends to be the loudest voice in the American church is fear. It's fear. It's not faith. It's not the great commission. It's not the fear of God. It's the fear of man. And it's the love of, if I could be so bold, it's the love of money. It's the love of money. So today what we're going to do is not try to answer every question. We're not going to walk out of here with one set policy on refugee resettlement or immigration that all believers are going to agree on. But what we can do is we can dive into scripture and we can get the counsel of God that'll frame up his heart for this situation. And hopefully as we do that, we can then land with some practical suggestions in light of the gospel for followers of Jesus. So Does scripture even speak to the issues of immigration and refugee resettlement? Does the Bible speak to that? And what I would say is the Bible speaks to that in an overwhelming manner. In fact, over 92 times in the Old Testament alone, the stranger, the sojourner, the alien, the refugee, the immigrant is directly referenced in light of God's heart for people. Now, we can't go through all those scriptures today. We'd be here for three hours, but I do want to take you to two of them. The first is found in Leviticus. And Leviticus 19 verses 33 and 34 say this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. 
You shall treat that stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, here's the challenge. Uh, Whenever New Testament Christians go back and read the Old Testament, sometimes things get really confusing. And we get confused on issues like, is America Israel? Can you just take anything that God says to Israel and apply that to America? Uh, Is America a theocracy? Is America God's covenant people? And when we do that, we get confused about what America is and what Israel is. America is not Israel. So you can't just cut and paste every single command and ordinance of God to Israel and put that on America, nor can you do that exactly for the church, although the church is the new Israel, the covenant people of God. So you have to actually approach the Old Testament with a little bit of understanding of how to interpret the law, if that's going to make sense to you. How do you read the law? And I'll just ask you, like, show of hands, have you ever got to a passage in the Old Testament where God was commanding his people to do something or not do something, and you were totally confused as to how that related to your life as a follower of Jesus all these years later? Anybody else? The question is, what does that mean? And how do I relate to that in light of the gospel? Um, Do we ignore the law? Do we try to keep the law for salvation? Do we try to strive under the law and try to keep these dietary restrictions and commandments? And what the heck do we do with all of those ceremonial laws in the Old Testament? So let me just say a couple of things I think will be helpful in understanding this. John Calvin pointed out really helpfully that there are three main purposes for the law three main purposes. The first purpose of the law is that the Lord gave us the law to be this mirror that shows us just how holy and awesome and other God is and just how needy and sinful and broken we are. So it's this tutor that leads us to Jesus. And we see that in this text Because in this text, we get a glimpse into what God's like, and we get a glimpse into what we're like. What is God like in this text? Well, here's what we see. God is the God that came near to Israel in their suffering and slavery in a strange land. For over 400 years, the children of Israel cried as they were oppressed. They wept and they prayed and they were impoverished and they were oppressed. And in all of their suffering and bondage, here's what we see throughout their story. The God that created everything out of nothing had compassion and mercy for them, not because they deserved it morally, but because of his great grace. He drew near to them. He brought deliverance to them. He became their tower and their refuge of strength and help. So what do we learn about God in the law here? Well, what we learn is God has a unique heart for people that are vulnerable and oppressed. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this trio of people that are most at risk. It's the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. And throughout the Old Testament, God's love and delight in Israel is not to just terminate on his covenant people, but it's to lead them out in compassionate care of those that are at risk in culture. God is a God of mercy. He's a God of mercy. Now, what does this mirror of the law in Leviticus chapter 19 tell us about ourselves? Well, here's what it tells me about me. It tells me that I want to find a loophole to get around God's command to love the stranger, to love the foreigner, to love the neighbors around me because of just how difficult that really is. Here's what the law tells me about me. It tells me I'm really good at loving myself. I love me. I want to be satisfied. I want to be comfortable. I want to be secure. I want to be prosperous. I want to protect what's mine. And then if you move out from me to the next circle, if you lay your hands on my wife or my children, I'm going to protect them. I'm going to fight for them. And then if you go out to the next level, to my immediate friends, I care about them. I'm really protective. But the bigger that circle gets, the less personal that circle gets, the more difficult it is for me to express anything more than indifference let alone what God commands Israel to express to the stranger, love. It's really hard. And there's moments where we can have sort of sympathy and compassion. You might see an ad on television. You might walk by somebody suffering on the street. But to really be moved beyond sentimentality into gospel love, which always has action as a part of it, it's really hard. 
what the scripture is holding up to my face and to your face is, hey, Israel, here's what God's like. God of mercy. He's a God of compassion. He's a God of justice. He cares for the poor and vulnerable. And hey, Israel, here's what we're like. We're prone towards selfishness. We're prone towards xenophobia in our sin. Now, in addition to that, the law has another purpose that Calvin points out, and that's to help us know what God's will is after we meet Jesus by grace. So how does this guide us? Well, uh, no, we're not Israel, and no, America's not Israel, but as a follower of Jesus, you can't throw out 92 references in the Old Testament to God's concern for the stranger, for the alien, for the refugee. You can't throw that out as actually not a part of what it means to walk in the fear of God. Let me show you one other. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10. Jesus quoted this scripture a lot. Starting in verse 12, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to love your God and to walk in his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Verse 14, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. So stop here for just a second. What are we seeing in this text? What is this telling us about God? What is this telling us about us? Well, here's what it's telling us about God. That God, first of all, He's the one that owns everything. He is the God of heaven and the highest heavens belong to him. Meaning he owns everything and anything that he entrusts to his people is not because they deserved it morally. It was a gift of grace because he set his love on their fathers, not because of their deeds, but because of mercy. It tells us that anything that you've got belongs to him. And that your gifts that he's entrusted to your hands, you hold as a steward, not an owner of. And in addition to that, what it points out is because of God's grace, what he expects and demands is that over time you would grow in your love and fear of God, not your love of all your idols and your fear of losing them. Here's what I mean by that. I don't mean little trinkets that you carve and bow down to. Some cultures do that. Our idols are different. What we love are all the things that God made. We love those things and fear losing those things more than we fear God. I love comfort. I love it. I love to escape to comfort when life is hard. I love it. I fear losing it. I love the ideal and dream of having my family thrive and flourish and having a means of passing off to the next generation some security. And I like that idea. That's good. Uh, but sometimes I love it more than I love God. And what tends to happen for all of us is that the directional needle of our hearts don't point towards God with love and fear. We point towards all the stuff he made with love and fear. Like, what are you terrified of losing? What could you not go on without if it was taken from you? And probably, that's probably something that you're worshiping, not God. And what he's saying to Israel here is that you're to love God in response to the grace he put on you. You're to love him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. You're to grow in having your affections line up with him through a life of repentance as the spirit works in you. And the thing that you're to fear is not losing all the stuff that you've amassed, but the thing that you're to fear more than anything is violating the will of God and departing from what he wants you to do and who he calls you to be. Now, what does that have to do with caring for immigrants and refugees? Turns out it has a lot to do with it. Look at verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn for the Lord your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Here's what he's saying. 
the reason that we have such a hard time in loving neighbor and in loving God, which are the two great commandments, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. The reason that's so hard is not that we don't have enough rules and commands. It's not that we don't have enough external behaviors. It's that our hearts need to have something happen to them that's described as circumcision. You can cut off the foreskin of a little baby and that doesn't give that baby a heart that loves God and loves neighbor. What needs to happen is the deadness, the hardness, the fleshiness of our hearts need to be circumcised so that we can reflect God's grace in loving him, in loving neighbors, and in caring for those around us. And what's so challenging about this is how do you do that, right? Like it's a command you can't keep. You can't do it. How do you circumcise your heart? How do you get in there and cut out the stuff that's dead? It's the law of God that brings us back to just how badly we need the work of the spirit to bring us to repentance and new life. Now, what's crazy about this is that work of circumcision in the heart, that's a work of grace. It then creates love for God and love for neighbor, including, if not especially including, the sojourner, the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan. And what happens in that moment, get this, what happens in that moment as God's people love those that are vulnerable, the glory of God is shown forth in the earth because they're reflecting what he did for them. See, Israel was vulnerable in Egypt. They were the foreigners. They were the aliens. They were the refugees. They were the poor and destitute. And God in his mercy came after them. And here's what he's saying. I want you to show to others the love that I've shown to you because in doing that, my beauty gets demonstrated. My story, my grace, and my kindness. So we could go passage by passage in the Old Testament. Now, Now we clearly haven't arrived yet at like what should be our policies but I think the tone of the Old Testament that's clear is the heart of God's people for anyone that's poor and oppressed should be the heart of God's love for neighbor because if it wasn't for the grace of God, you would be outside of the promises of God. It's mercy. Now, let's go to the New Testament. Uh, There's a lot of different places that we could go. I want to show you just a couple of passages and then I want to address, I want to address the pushback that's in the room as we talk about this. If you got a Bible, you can flip to Luke chapter 10. This is a famous parable Jesus tells starting in verse 25. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Um, Insert your favorite lawyer joke there. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So let's stop here for just a second. Um, Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving neighbor as self. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel, but it's the summation of all the will of God It's the fulfillment of all of the different commands and intricacies of the law. You can boil all the law down to a concentrated dose that says this, what do you owe to God? Complete and total devotion and love. And to him, love for neighbor. Are you you tracking with that? So here's what's crazy about this text. In this moment, the purpose of the law is to be that mirror that leads us back to needing a savior. And then after we meet that savior, the guide to help us figure out what God wants, but the lawyer does what we do, right? Instead of falling on his face and saying, I can't do it. I can't love God with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul and all my strength. I love his stuff, but I don't love him. And and when I feel like I'm growing in love for him, then I forget him and I fall back and I don't love my neighbor as myself. I need grace. I need a savior. Jesus, I need you to change my life and change my heart. Instead of that happening, he looks for a loophole. Anybody else do that? He tries to self-justify, which is all man-centered religion, by trying to find a way out of just how difficult that commandment is. Here's what he says. Verse 29, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
Like, surely just the people that think like me, same religion as me. Um, surely it's just the people in the family of Israel, maybe my immediate village relatives. And Jesus tells a parable that was so scandalous, so offensive, that you have to sit up and pay attention. Jesus tells a story, and if we were telling it in today's climate, he could have told it maybe like this. He could have said, this man fell into the hands of muggers, He was in the road, he's bleeding, he was going to die, and an evangelical pastor came along. (laughs) An evangelical pastor saw this bloody man in the road, and for whatever reason, maybe he was busy, maybe he was scared, uh, maybe he just was stressed out because of all the concerns in his life, the evangelical pastor crosses to the other side of the street to get away from the dying man. And then a community group leader comes along. The community group leader sees the guy and the community group leader does the same thing, sidesteps around the bleeding man. And then a church member comes along and the church member does the exact same thing, keeps on moving around the suffering man. And then Jesus says a Samaritan came along. Now you gotta know, first century Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated the Jews. Samaritans were considered sort of Um, like racially impure. They were like a mix of different tribes of Israel and and, uh, Israelites that had had marriages with Gentiles. And in addition to just the racial impurity, they weren't considered true Jews. In addition to that, like they were considered total heretics. They had really bad theology. They had mixed a little bit of Judaism and a little bit of Eastern religion, a little bit of magic. Like they had this whole kind of new age synchronistic cocktail of religion going. And there was violence between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus says, a Samaritan came along and knelt down in the ground and tended the man's wounds. And Jesus holds him up as an example of what God commands. Now, think about it in today's culture. Uh, If Jesus was telling this story today, he could have said an illegal immigrant came along. Or a Muslim came along knelt down. The point being, Jesus is going above and beyond to say, here's this person that's a picture of needing mercy that shows mercy, that's a call to the people of God to recognize there are no loopholes for the commands of God to love him with all your heart and to love neighbor as self. There are no loopholes, but there is grace. There is grace. There's the empowerment of the spirit. There's the work of repentance. There's transformation over time so that by his power, we could grow up to love God more and to love neighbors more fully. So I would just say, who's our neighbor? Who's our neighbor? Certainly Christian charity is due to those of the family of God. Certainly beyond question. But doesn't this parable and doesn't the tone of the Old Testament also seem to imply that to be a follower of Jesus, compassion and mercy, and not just moralistic external deeds of dropping a few dollars in a bucket, but actually love from your heart is what God requires? Let me show you one more. And this one is scary. Sometimes scary parts of the Bible, we just sort of go around them instead of sitting in the tension of what they're actually saying. Matthew 25 is a really scary text. Jesus is talking about what happens at his return, the last day or the great day. Verse 31, he says this, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger or a sojourner and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick. You visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? 
When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, listen to me. This passage is not saying that entrance into the family of God is something you earn with your acts of charity and love to the least of these. But it is saying something incredibly profound. It's saying that the evidence of the new birth, the evidence of being God's people, the evidence of having a life changed by his grace is so connected to love for the least of these that on the great day, based on that evidence, he can make an accurate evaluation of who are his and who are not his. Certainly Jesus says, the least of these, my brothers. So definitely beyond question, this is talking about poor and suffering immigrant Christians and immigrant refugees but with the scope of the rest of scripture and all the commands about neighbor love and the emphasis that Jesus places on the story of the good Samaritan, I think it would be very foolish to exclude non-Christians from the kind of charity and compassion that Jesus expects from his people. Now, let's stop here for a second and let's lean into some objections. Because some of you are thinking, well, that's great to talk about God's heart for immigrants and refugees. Um, but as soon as you brought up 11.4 million people that are in the country as undocumented immigrants, um, I want to know how you're talking about loving and serving and engaging them in light of Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 tends to be the big objection. I've heard it multiple times over the last week. What about Romans 13 with all of this talk of care for the immigrant, care for the refugee? So let's read Romans 13 together very quickly. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse one, it says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. You will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God as an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Here's what's happening in this text. Jesus, Jesus in his authority has delegated authority to government leaders, to police officers, to uh, law enforcement, to military. And the purpose of that delegation, hear me, is that God might through that delegated authority restrain evil on planet earth. Romans 13 is saying God in his love doesn't want the whole world to look like Mogadishu. In his mercy and his grace, he's restraining evil so that we don't unmake the world in a weekend in our crimes against one another. And one of the ways in which he restrains evil is through the exercise of the sword. It's very important at this point to acknowledge how badly we need people in law enforcement and how badly we need the many people in our church that serve in the armed forces. God uses those offices, those callings, those vacations to restrain evil on planet earth. But you have to also be aware that throughout the rest of scripture, there are clear times in which authority and laws are laws that violate the higher laws of God that demand the people of God work for reforming and changing those laws. And if they can't, breaking those laws. Acts chapter five, verse 29, Peter and the apostles are arrested and they answer to those in authority. We must obey God rather than men. Isaiah 10, one, speaking of unjust law says, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and to the writers who keep writing oppression to to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right. That widows, may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Amos 5.11, 
says, therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. It's fascinating to me that last week when we talked about abortion, which is the law of the land. And we talked about that as an injustice, as a sinful law, as a law that Christians should work to reform and change. I didn't get one single email from a single pro-life person in our church saying, what about Romans 13? And the reason is they're clearly convinced that there's a higher law at place than Roe v. Wade. It's the law of God that demands that dignity be given to every human being, including the unborn. And my question is, if there are unjust laws relating to immigration and relating to refugee resettlement, why would the people of God use Romans 13 as a way to skirt around our calling to be the voice of justice and love for people that are suffering? Historically, this has happened again and again and again. Sadly, Romans 13 was the loophole because it was misapplied. It became a loophole and an excuse for Christian evangelicals to not engage in the civil rights movement and to be silent against Jim Crow laws. So here's what I want to say. And then I want to get to some really practical things. As a follower of Jesus, your view of immigration and your view of refugee resettlement, despite whatever particulars in policy that you think are right and just, here's what you need to remember. Three things. Remember one, Jesus is an immigrant. The son of God that you worship and obey is an immigrant. He left the kingdom of heaven, gladly came to earth, was born of a virgin and lived here, learning the culture and the language and submitting himself even to obey sinful parents. He became an immigrant. In addition, the Jesus that holds the universe together by the word of his power was a refugee. Shortly after his birth, King Herod tried to wipe out all the babies to hold on to his power. Jesus's mom, Mary, and his daddy, Joseph, escaped and took Jesus all the way to Egypt, where they lived as refugees in a foreign land. You think maybe just maybe Jesus would have had some memories growing up of the kind of vulnerability and animosity and strife and hostility that Egyptians felt about having this Jewish family with a little kid move into their neighborhood. And most importantly, this is where the great news of the gospel makes me want to cry. Jesus is the great naturalizer. He's an immigrant. He was a refugee, but he is also the great naturalizer. And what I mean is naturalization is the legal act or process by which non-citizens in a country acquire citizenship or nationality of that country. You become a naturalized citizen. Here's what's crazy. You and me, according to scripture, in particular Ephesians chapter two, you and I were strangers to the promises of God. We were aliens, but now we've been made fellow citizens, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. You were outside of all the blessings and all of the benefits of being a part of God's kingdom and God's family and God's country. You were an alien to all of that. You had no natural born claims to any of those benefits. You had no heritage. You had no inheritance in his kingdom. And through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, here's what's happened. You, if your faith is in Christ, you've become a naturalized citizen of the eternal kingdom of heaven. It's mind-blowing, the grace of Jesus towards us. So as we close this today, I want to leave you with some appeals, some pastoral appeals. 
I would appeal to you in light of scripture as a follower of Jesus to number one, remember where your first citizenship lies. Scripture is very clear that to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you should be a good citizen of your nation on planet earth. Paying our taxes, submitting to those in authority, being good neighbors, being productive with our jobs and vocations. All of that is part of being a follower of Jesus as a citizen of America. But scripture is also very clear. You are sojourners and aliens during your time of exile in this life. Your loyalty, your devotion is not first and foremost to your political party or even to your nation. As a follower of Jesus, Christ demands that your loyalty be first and foremost to him as your sovereign. That means the first question is not what is my party line as a Democrat on any issue? Not what is the party line as a Republican on any issue? The first question is, Jesus, what do you demand of your citizens? What do you want? How should I think about this? What should I love? What should I hate? What should I desire? What should I say? What should I do? You're the sovereign. I'm a part of your kingdom, your family. Secondly, I would give you the pastoral appeal to prioritize the great commission at the very top of the list of things that you care about. Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 says to his friends, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. My sense is, Great Commission, for most of us as American Christians, ranks about down here, and security and prosperity ranks somewhere up here. And I'm not saying I'm not part of the problem there. Because Jesus has all authority, though, we can be courageous, and we can see that both with refugees and immigrants, we've been given a profound gospel opportunity to advance the work of the Great Commission by loving them and serving them and telling them about Christ. Think of one of my sisters in this church who was raised Muslim and was able to come to this country on a student visa and had a C group of girls that loved her. And she met Jesus. She met Jesus because she had the opportunity to be around people that love Jesus. I want that for people. In addition, the Great Commission is not just realizing we have a unique opportunity to love and serve the 40 million immigrants in our nation and those that get resettled as refugees. The Great Commission is also a reminder that immigrants and refugees are not just recipients of mission, they're also partners on mission. Tim Keller said it rightly that the world is not becoming more secular. White Westerners are. And the reality is some of the most vibrant denominations and parts of the Western church are denominations and movements and churches that are led by and full of immigrants and refugees that love Jesus. There are numerous, numerous people coming to our country who love Christ who are walking in the fear of God, who care about family. And there's great commission opportunities for them to help revitalize a consumeristic American church. Now, security is important. It's right to figure out how to secure our borders. It's right. Government should do that. and We should vote to that end. It's right to make sure that bad guys don't come into our country that want to harm American citizens. That's right. We should care about that. But at the end of the day, I just want to say in terms of ultimate priorities, the number one thing as a follower of Jesus we should be praying for and believing for and fighting for is that the Great Commission would be fulfilled and that every nation, tribe, and tongue would know Jesus. Thirdly, my appeal to you as one of your pastors would be to relationally engage immigrants and refugees. Something profound happens when you move from it just being an issue to being a relationship. I wish I had the opportunity to know my grandpa that moved here, my great-grandpa that moved here from Lebanon. I wish I got to know him. 
I'm grateful to God for the profound impact that friends and relatives have made in my life that are immigrants and refugees. I have a relative that when she was a young teenager fled violence and poverty in Central America, hired a coyote, went through the dangerous journey to get into Los Angeles, lived for years as an undocumented worker, worked, provided for her family, met Jesus, and eventually became a naturalized citizen of the U.S. She's profoundly impacted my view of the fact that these people are not an issue, but they're human beings. I'm grateful to God that I've got another relative that was uh, a persecuted minority in the Middle East. She was persecuted due to her faith and she was able to find asylum and refuge in the U.S. and uh, is now in the process of becoming a U.S. citizen. Like, I'm, I'm profoundly impacted by her story, by her faith, by her courage. And I would just say like, Wherever you land on this issue as it relates to political engagement, as a follower of Jesus, build relationships with people that are not from America originally. It'll change your heart for the Great Commission. Fourthly, and I'll close with this, I would appeal to you as one of your pastors to be a thoughtful and engaged Christian citizen. And here's what I mean. One, please do the work to get the facts get the facts. Do the reading. Don't let the forwarded email be the last word on what's actually happening as it relates to refugees and immigrants. Don't let the biased news report on CNN or Fox News be the last word. Be be the kind of engaged Christian citizen that doesn't have to become a scholar, but at least goes to information to dig into what it is that's really happening give you some examples. Um, Did you know, you may or may not know this, but I'll give it to you just in case you don't. Did you know that refugees already go through an 18 to 24 month vetting process in the U.S.? That there's coordination between the FBI, the Department of State, Homeland Security, and the DOD. They undergo multiple interviews. Their relatives, friends, ex-girlfriends go through multiple interviews. Background checks that include biographic and biometric information are included. There are health screenings. And if there's any pause for them being settled in the U.S., they're not allowed to come. Since the U.S. signed the Refugee Act into law, three million refugees have been admitted into the U.S. And there has not been a single American life taken by a refugee in a terror incident. Like, and I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm just saying, let's not let fear tactics be what drive the way that we engage with important issues. Could happen. It's much more likely that someone would come here on a tourist visa, overstay it, and do damage to us than to go through the vetting process of becoming a refugee. In addition to that, did you know that between 2003 and 2015, 34,000 of the refugees that have been settled in the U.S., or followers of Jesus, that's a big deal. As it relates to immigration, we could talk about gathering facts all day long because there's so much misinformation, such as the persistent misconception is that undocumented immigrants never pay taxes in the U.S. In reality, in 2012, sales, excise taxes, property taxes, and income taxes by undocumented immigrants accounted for $11.8 billion just for state and local governments. 75% of undocumented immigrants, 75% pay social security taxes that they're never going to get the benefits from, amounting to as much in some years as $18 billion. So we do have a problem with securing our borders, but there's a lot of rhetoric that doesn't add up to the facts. Did you know that this is something I hear often? Well, I I have a relative that came the legal way and these people are not coming the legal way. They just need to go through the process. Did you know that if you're a U.S. citizen and you have an immediate family member, maybe a wife or a child that lives in a different country and you want them to come here, depending on the country, the wait to get that 
visa status can be as much as 21 years if they're coming from Mexico. 21 years. If you're coming from the Philippines, it's as much as 15 years. This one blows me away. Did you know that in 2013, an average of about 200 parents of U.S. citizens were deported every day? If you have a child in the U.S., thanks to the 14th Amendment, that child's a U.S. citizen, 200 parents of U.S. citizens were deported every day. More than 10,000 of those parents who were deported were never convicted of a crime. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm just saying, be a thoughtful and engaged Christian citizen. What's amazing is that two times in the last decade, two times comprehensive immigration reform has been proposed two times. And, and that, comfort, that comprehensive immigration reform always has included three things that both Republicans and Democrats have agreed on. Let's secure our borders. Two, let's fix all the crazy visa inconsistencies, such as 70% of farm workers in America are undocumented immigrants. And yet the number of work visas that we hand out is a fraction of the actual need for our economy. Right, let's fix the squirrely visa stuff for parents of kids in other nations that need to be brought here. Let's fix that. And then the third component has always been, and let's provide not amnesty, but a legal process for people to become U.S. citizens if they've been here for years and they're not, um, they're not criminals. Like, let's figure out how them to pay all the taxes that they should pay and get the benefits of those taxes and pay a fine for having come here illegally. Republicans and Democrats have agreed on comprehensive immigration reform until it gets close to time for voting. And a very small group of lobbyists go crazy and we've backed off from reforming unjust laws. Now, I know this feels weird. Like, are you getting political? Look, I'm neither a Democrat nor a Republican. But... When there are laws that cut against the dignity and value of human beings, Christians should care about that. And I think if you dig in and do the research, you'll find that there are laws in the books that are unjust. So as we close this today, I cannot believe that Jesus loves me and pursues me and atones for just how hard and cold my heart often is. Like That makes me... That makes me humbled and it makes me worshipful that I so often in so many different ways don't love God, don't love my neighbor. And Jesus actually carried that and atoned for that. And he pursues me to bring me to grow in repentance and in love for God and for others. That blows my mind. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the beginning and the end of righteousness. He's where love begins for you. He's where love ends for you. What I want to do is take something that's overwhelming to Jesus in prayer, right? It's overwhelming that 60 billion people right now are displaced due to violence, persecution, and disaster. I don't know what to do with that. Jesus does. It's overwhelming to me that 11.4 million undocumented workers are in our nation. I don't know what to do with that. Jesus does. So rather than despairing, or given up, or being depressed, or getting angry and bitter, let's stand together and go to Jesus in prayer.